All right, today we are talking about the triumphal entry. It is Palm Sunday after all. I want to begin with a question. Do you ever have the desire to make a difference? Do you want to be remembered for doing something great? Maybe not all of us, but I think uh, most of us want to leave some sort of a lasting legacy. And I think to some extent we all uh, want to know that what we did in life counted for something. So I want you to ponder those questions as we go through this morning's passage. I want you to imagine uh, being there outside of Jerusalem. You just heard the context or the the passage read. Um, I want you to imagine being there outside of Jerusalem on the day when Jesus rode into the city. Uh, You heard that Jesus was coming into town on this day, and the man you had been hearing rumors about for months now, uh, he healed a lame man, he cast out demons, he fed 5,000 people in the middle of a desert. Some say that he even freaking walked on water, and he raised the dead. And you're like, dude, I got to see this guy come into town, right? With my own eyes. And Matthew records that Jesus drew near to Jerusalem. And for context, Jesus had begun his journey far up north in Caesarea Philippi. And then he and his disciples had walked down uh, along Galilee and to Capernaum and across the region of Judea and and the far side of the Jordan River. And and then he goes to Jericho and now they they draw close to Jerusalem. So there's this long journey all the way down. They only had about one mile to go. And they arrive at Bethphage, which was a small village between Bethany and Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem there. And our Bibles label this the triumphal entry, which sounds kind of strange, like a strange title to me, uh, because though Matthew records that the whole city was uh, stirred up at his arrival, his recording of this event with the, uh, ends with the residents asking, well, well who is this? If it's a triumphal entry, shouldn't people know who's actually triumphantly coming to the city, right? Wouldn't you think that? And then you look at the answer that the crowds give the city residents. Well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's comment from John chapter 1, it always comes to mind when I hear people mention Nazareth, is can any good thing come out of Nazareth, right? And the answer back then was no, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Um, And he wasn't anything more to them than a prophet. Certainly not the Messiah. Certainly not a king. And then there's the fact that Mark's gospel, which we looked at a few years ago, if you were with us, we went through Mark's gospel, and it ends with this this episode of the triumphal entry um, with a very different type of ending. Mark's account ends rather abruptly, without any hype, without much fanfare. He simply records that Jesus went to the temple, looked around, because it was late in the evening, he went back to, back to Bethany. And reading the four descriptions of this event in the four different Gospels, I picture Jesus coming into town with this enthusiastic crowd who celebrated the arrival of a good prophet from possibly the line of David that they maybe have known of, but he was from the town of Nazareth. He was popular prophet, but nothing more than that. And in this episode, Jesus didn't seem to want to change their opinion of him at all. He just kind of, and we'll see, he just kind of comes into town. So there Jesus comes, riding on a donkey. A donkey. We'll get to that. And he continues right through the gates of the city, down the streets, up to the temple, without a sword, without a miracle, with no command to charge. It's just all very anticlimactic. And so the crowd disperses, and Jesus is not the anointed one. He's not the Messiah, they thought. And, and like Michael Card wrote in the song that, we, that the kids sung this morning, the people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. 
Though your word contained the plan, they couldn't understand your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. And so Jesus was left alone with 12 disciples, standing amid a sea of people, shouting dies down, the excitement wanes. And imagine you watch all this, and there's Jesus, just a man, right? He's riding on a donkey. That's kind of weird. Because people are yelling, the son of David, that would kind of, you know, make him a king maybe, but new kings don't typically ride into town on a, on a donkey. They ride in on a horse. Nothing really makes sense. And so the excitement, enthusiasm died down. The whole city is stirred by his arrival, but now they're all dispersed. You know, unmet expectations can cause people, especially crowds, to do all sorts of crazy things. The whole city was excited to welcome Jesus on Sunday, but when the hopes that he might do something miraculous for the city were dashed, when their hopes that he would maybe draw a sword and lead an insurrection were devastated, the crowds turned against him because less than a week later, the crowds were singing something very differently. They were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. The enthusiasm of the crowd on Sunday was just that, expectations that their hopes would be realized. Their enthusiasm wasn't faith, for they did not believe that he was the Messiah. Never confuse enthusiasm of a crowd with true faith that leads to life. I give I have myself, we're going to look at three parts of this moment in history, the triumphal entry, okay? A command, a cult, and a king. First, command, verses 1 to 3, back in Matthew chapter 21. Verses 1 to 3. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the city in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So Jesus gives a pretty detailed command. Go into the village in front of you. Now, he doesn't name the village, but most likely it was Bethphage at the base of the Mount of Olives, right between Bethany and, and Jerusalem. And, and Jesus had been in this village multiple times as he traveled back and forth uh, between Jerusalem and Bethany. And he says, immediately as you enter, you will find a donkey and a colt tied together, untie them and bring them to me. Now, as a kid, this command always struck me as a bit odd. You just go into a random town, this is how it was portrayed to me, go into a random town, find a random donkey and steal it bring it to me, right? But as I've studied the life of Jesus more, I don't think that is what is going on here. You see, Jesus knew people in this area. He had been here many times before. Uh, some scholars think that he'd been in the vicinity of Bethany for a month or two before uh, his triumphal entry in Passion Week. And so it is highly probable that Jesus arranged this scenario with the cult's owner a few days or weeks before. You see, Jesus is the all-knowing, sovereign God, and he had everything under control, the timing of everything. He orchestrated all the events that were going to take place in this coming week. I want you to think about this situation. The cult, or the command is very specific. Jesus wanted a specific cult found in a specific location belonging to a specific man. There was no if there was no relationship with the owner, then this command could easily be interpreted as presumptuous and unethical, right? Go take a man's cult without asking, without receiving permission. Just tell him that I need it, Right? And I'm sure it would kind of feel like these two disciples were stealing this colt. That doesn't seem to be the way Jesus operated. And the statement gives, that Jesus gives the disciples indicates to me that there was a relationship with the owner. 
He said, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord, the master, needs them. The owner master needs them. Was Jesus really the owner? Well, yes, because he's God and everything ultimately belongs to God. But no, from a human standpoint, the colt and donkey did not belong to him. However, the owner of the colt and donkey knew who the master was. And he most likely had given permission to Jesus to use them. And the owner knew that when the time came, his own master, Jesus, would have need of these two animals. The Lord had need of them. Now, Jesus had walked on water. Do you think he needed a colt to ride on into Jerusalem? Jesus had walked back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany multiple times. He doesn't need the colt in the sense that he was unable to go into Jerusalem without it. He didn't need the colt to do some type of labor. He needed it as a symbol. And so Jesus explained this to the owner, made the arrangements, and when the time was right, he put the plan into action. He will send them at once. Jesus says that the owner would send the donkey and the colt with the two disciples right away because he knew what was going to happen. And Jesus could say all this because the owner knew who he was loaning the animals to. These details are significant to me. I believe that Jesus took time to plan and prepare. He arranged the details. He modeled using wisdom and prudence and order and kindness, and he did it all things properly and orderly and ethically. And Jesus did all of this. He arranged the events. He obediently and purposely planned this all out so that he could fulfill prophecy and accomplish the Father's mission. Jesus did all of this out of obedience to God the Father. But I want you to see another thing here. Go back up to verse 1. It says that Jesus sent two disciples into the city. These two disciples aren't named in any of the gospel accounts, all four of them, right? You ever wonder why none of them are named? Wouldn't it be nice to be recognized for doing that, right? You know, give them credit. You know, it's human nature. We, we always want to be recognized for things that we do, to be acknowledged. <clears throat> One thing I preach about the Bible is what it often leaves out, what it doesn't say. It does name quite a few people in, in the different episodes, but it fails to name everyone. Just a little aside, you know, just because you are not recognized or named for something you did or made or contributed does not mean that what you did was unimportant. It does, mean, it does not mean that your contribution was insignificant. Being a servant of Jesus is not about being recognized or being a servant of Jesus is not about the greatness uh, of your name or, or about anything else like that. It's about humble service to Jesus. Jesus commanded two unnamed disciples to do something simple, straightforward, understandable, normal, but oh, so important. The command to untie the two animals and bring them to Jesus was the pivotal event in a chain of events that resulted in the salvation of the entire human race. Jesus arranged for the animals to be available behind the scenes. The two disciples went and secured the animals for Jesus. Just a normal thing. And here's something I want you to see. In both cases, doing small, overlooked, unrecognized, everyday, ordinary tasks like arranging to pick up some animals and untying a colt in the service of Jesus has eternal significance. You see, the commands of Jesus are to be carried out not to receive recognition or greatness. His commands are to be carried out so that his purposes can be accomplished both in this life and in the next. And this is of eternal significance and importance. 
So don't overlook the small things Jesus asks you to do. Things like receive a child or share the gospel with someone. Being generous with what you have. Loving your neighbor. Preparing a meal. Sharing a meal. Giving a ride to someone. Shoveling snow. Fixing a light. Making a slideshow. Moving chairs. Making bread. Cleaning a bathroom. These small, insignificant, everyday acts have eternal significance and could very well set in motion a chain of events that could lead to salvation of souls. Pretty cool. Number two, a cult. Verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So the disciples obeyed. They did just as Jesus had directed them. As insignificant as it may have seemed, they did it. It's a great example of obedience. They did exactly as Jesus commanded them to do. Oh, that, that, that this would be said of each of us, that we did exactly as Jesus commanded us to do. Because even though they didn't know it at the time, there was a great purpose in every detail of this situation. Because this act of untying a colt is connected all the way back into history to a messianic prophecy. Way back to Genesis chapter 49, it's recorded that the patriarch Jacob, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Jacob blessed each of his sons. He had 12 of them. And in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Jacob was blessing his son Judah, and here's what he said to Judah. The scepter, the ruling rod, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Notice the word, he comes. I want you to hold that phrase until we look at what the people were chanting that day. He says, until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him, binding his foal to the vine and a colt to the choicest vine. Now, coincidence that Jacob mentions a colt and a donkey being tied to a vine in conjunction with he who comes, which is a guy who's going to rule as a king forever? No. And this is why I think Jesus arranged the situation. He made sure that the owner had tied up the colt so he could quietly fulfill this prophecy. And so the disciples obediently untie the colt. They did what they were told, though they did not understand the eternal significance of the moment. They were taking part in fulfilling a prophecy that went back thousands of years. As the children sang this morning, though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand, right? However, they obediently brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus. Now we get to our third point of king, verse 8. Now most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So he enters on a colt, on a donkey. Now, how did Jesus sit on both of them? I don't know. Maybe he straddled them. Maybe he stood on them. Maybe he put one foot on one and sat on the other. I don't know how he did both of them, but it says that he had both of them. It's not important. What is important is this. True to his nature and consistent with his teaching, Jesus affirmed that glory comes through humility. 
and greatness comes through service. Donkeys and horses were both beasts upon which kings rode on. But donkeys and horses were ridden by kings at different times for different purposes. The donkey symbolized peace. The horse symbolized war. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38, we find that Solomon rode on David's mule as he peacefully assumed the kingship after his father. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 7, we see that Jesus sat on a colt. Jesus had just walked from Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't that Jesus was tired and needed a ride. There's another prophetic fulfillment going on here. And Matthew quotes the prophet Zechariah applying it to Jesus, the one we heard read this morning beautifully by one of our children. Zechariah 9.9, and and, uh, Matthew quotes it right here. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice the reference to coming and colt and foal. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, to fulfill this messianic prophecy. And through his actions, Jesus was declaring that the prophesied Messiah, and that he was the prophesied Messiah and the coming king. However, at the same time, his actions were breaking all the expectations of what a Messiah and king would actually be like. It wouldn't be a proud Messiah, but a humble Messiah. He rode on a symbol of peace, not on a horse, a symbol of war demonstrating that humility leads to glory. He was not a conquering Messiah, but a servant Messiah. He rode on a symbol of lowliness and service, not on a symbol of greatness and strength and dominance like a horse, demonstrating that humility leads to greatness. And even though he entered with cloaks and branches, the crowd did not understand who he really was. When we uh, lived in Papua New Guinea among the Tobo people. Uh, we would travel to different villages from time to time, and especially when a dignitary or a celebrity from out of town, from, from a big city, would come in to visit. And whenever uh, a village was going to receive political delegates or important people from a town, they would cut branches and grab flower petals, and then they would kind of throw them on the roads, and they would grab branches and wave over them and make a big to-do. And then as the dignitary came into the village, they would lay these branches on the ground and stuff, and it was really cool to see. It was reminded me just of the triumphal entry, exactly. You see, Jesus was a well-known individual whom I believe the crowds were welcoming to the city. He, was, he received a more glamorous welcome than most because he was popular, not necessarily because they believed that he was a king. And as I said before, we must not confuse enthusiasm in the moment with true faith that leads to life. They were enthusiastic that someone of his stature was coming into their town, but I don't believe that they had accepted him or or realized that he was the true Messiah. But he entered with shouts into Jerusalem, it says, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus was a son of David. He was from his lineage, uh, and many folks knew that. Hosanna means save us now, save I pray. This line and the next one after it that they're shouting come from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Most likely what's going on here is that the crowd was singing and shouting Psalm 118 as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. These psalms were sung in in the Israelite communities all the time. 
And, and some may have understood the significance of what they were singing, and others may not. They may have just been singing these songs as they were coming in. The next line says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there are two ways of reading this uh, quote with two different nuances of meaning. One way is to read it from the crowd's point of view. The crowd was chanting a psalm of blessing, a psalm that was chanted year after year as pilgrims would enter the city at the times of the feasts and festivals. And its basic meaning was, blessed are the ones, the pilgrims, who come in the name of the Lord, who come to worship God at his temple during this Passover feast. May the ones who come in the name of the Lord be blessed. And that was all that we're seeing, some of the crowd. And another way to read this, though, is from the author's point of view, from Matthew's vantage point. Matthew's pointing out that this moment was a fulfillment of prophecy. Notice, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, blessed is Jesus, the one who comes, the fulfillment of those two prophecies. Back in Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs, binding his colt to the vine, right? The Messiah had been prophesied to come on a colt, and it was happening. Zechariah 9, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king was prophesied to come on a donkey. And so Matthew's saying that the crowds did not necessarily recognize what they were doing, but they were truly heralding the arrival of the Messiah and King Jesus. Now you may ask, well, didn't they connect Jesus as the Messiah with the next line? You know, Hosanna in the highest? Though they chanted this back and forth as Jesus went into the city, there's no indication that the crowd was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the King, or God, or any of that. Because look at verse 11. They answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. To those standing there, Jesus was an important prophet, but still just simply that. A prophet from a small town in Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? To them, Jesus was just one of the semi-important and popular figures who came into the city on that day, entered a temple, and they welcomed him as such. But Matthew records these details in this way so that we, the readers, are able to see who Jesus really was. That's what Matthew's intent was for writing this. Even though the crowds may have missed who he was, he wants us to understand. The Messiah had come in the name of the Lord, but no one received him. The son of David came riding on a colt, but no one recognized who he was. John chapter 1, verse 10, the apostle John said, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. How don't you think about that? It makes me very sad to read that. How that must have broken Jesus in all the excitement, all the fanfare, they did not truly receive him for what happened a few days later. And yet Jesus went to the cross for all humanity, for those who would receive him and for those who would not. As I said earlier, unmet expectations can cause crowds to do all sorts of crazy things. Jesus made it very clear that he was not a conquering king when he rode in on a colt and then on a donkey. If the crowd had any hopes that their nation would be saved by him, they were disappointed. If they had hoped that Jesus was there to destroy their national enemies, they were very disappointed. 
Jesus hadn't come to lead a physical kingdom or to bring war or, or a physical prosperity. Jesus had come to offer a spiritual, eternal kingdom to anyone who would believe in him. And this was not what the crowds expected or what they wanted, so the crowds turned against him for exactly one week later, or less than a week later. The same crowd was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And that's where many people are today. Maybe where you're at today. You may not be convinced that Jesus is of any significance or importance. You may have expectations of what God is like and how he should act. You may have hopes and dreams for what you think God should do in your life to save you. You might think that the greatest thing that you need saving from are your poverty or the injustice that you have experienced or the misfortune that you shoulder or the terrible circumstances under which you live. Maybe you think like the Jews in Jesus' day that we all need him to save us from our corrupt and godless government. But I'm here to tell you, well, God, actually, it's God's word is here to tell you, that none of those things are your worst problem. Your worst problem is sin. And sin infects all of us, making us unacceptable to God. You may say, well, who, me? I'm a pretty good person. I give to charities. I go to work and pay my taxes. I give to church once in a while. I'm a pretty good person. How can you say that I'm a sinner? Well, I didn't say that. God's word says it. God, God says it. God says that all have sinned, and fallen short of his perfect standard, which is the glory of God. And this sin nature inside of everyone who was ever born is what caused, causes the world to be evil and harsh and cruel, not the way that God created it to be. Or you might say something a little different, like the crowds did on that day. You might say, well, Jesus is just another prophet from a small town in Israel. What's the big deal? He's a good teacher, but that's about it. If you believe that Jesus was just another good teacher, you're in reality rejecting the reality of who he was and is. And the problem with rejecting Jesus is that it too is sin. Because God's word also says that rejecting Jesus is living in rebellion against God and rejection leads to rebellion. You are like the crowd who, not getting what they expected from Jesus, turned on him and said, crucify him. God's word says that the punishment for sin and rebellion and rejection of Jesus is death. But God, <laughs> God loves you. You see, God sent Jesus to earth to be born as a baby and then grow into a man for one purpose and one purpose only, to save you and I from our rejection and rebellion against him, to save us from our sin. And he did not come as a conquering king to right all of the injustices and to eliminate misfortune and bad circumstances. No, Jesus came to save us from something far worse and far more deadly than all of that. He came to save us from sin and death itself. And to do that, Jesus had to die in your place. Jesus didn't come to be celebrated like he did on triumphal entry. He came to be murdered. And he didn't shy away from it. In fact, Jesus demonstrated just how committed he was to this task by riding in on a donkey and not doing anything that anyone expected him to do. And consequently, they turned on him, and by Friday of that week, they hung him up on a cross. And Jesus allowed them to do that to him for you and for me. You see, believing in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is accepting the fact that you deserve to die because of your rebellion against God. 
It is admitting that you need his forgiveness because you have rejected and sinned against him. And when you believe that, God's word says that God considers your faith to be righteousness. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are adopted into God's family, and you receive eternal life. It is a gracious thing. It is not salvation from your physical difficulties, but it is salvation from sin and death, which is far, far worse. If you have not received this incredible Savior yet, I beg you to do that today. Place your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who a few short days after he rode into Jerusalem died in your place upon a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And then three days later, he rose again as the victorious King of Kings, the one we celebrated this morning. God's word promises that when you believe in Jesus as your Savior, your sins are forgiven and you will receive eternal life with God in heaven. Trust in him today. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have repented, placed your faith in him as your Savior, then this ap- there's another application from this story for you today, and I want, to, I want you to adopt the same mindset as Jesus had. I want to explain. In our world, I started out, many of us uh, want to make a significant contribution, make our mark, be remembered, have our voice heard, have maybe, you know, a few thousand followers, make a difference, protest protest the societal wrongs, ensure that everything's fair and equal, demand rights for everyone, change the world, right? We hear it over and over again in TV shows, movies, motivational speeches, you name it. If you put your mind to it, you can do anything. You've all heard it. You can change the world. And yet the only one who actually did change the course of human history, the only one who truly changed the world was Jesus. What's interesting is that Jesus changed the world in a most unexpected way. Not the way you and I would go about doing it. His way started with a lowly birth in a wooden manger in a stable. And then years later, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a war horse. Right? And then he, his life ended by being nailed to a wooden cross. Jesus didn't travel the world. He didn't lead an army or a nation. He didn't lead an online movement. He only had a band of 12 disciples who all basically deserted him and a few women followers. From an earthly standpoint, it didn't look like he'd make much of a difference. In his life, it didn't seem that he would change the world. But in his death and resurrection, he did. His life as the Messiah was unexpected. He disappointed more people than not. He dashed hopes and dreams. But in his death and resurrection, man, he changed everything. He brought hope out of disappointment. He secured life for us after death. He forgave our sins, adopted us into his family. He affirmed the value of every human being. He brought equality. He put his spirit in all who believe in him. He gave us power and authority, not to change the world, but to turn the world upside down. I want you to consider Jesus' example and those two unnamed disciples. Don't try to be important. Don't pursue having your voice heard above the billions of other voices on the planet. Don't seek to have a million followers. Don't try to change the world. That's all stuff for God to do. And we aren't God. No one needs to hear what I have to say or what you have to say. They only need to hear what God has to say. And God said everything he needed to say in the person of Jesus. He is the word of God in flesh. Be content with being like those two unnamed disciples who simply obey the command of Jesus because he's our awesome master and his command is to go tell everyone about him. (laughs) 
because he's so great. Be content with obedience in the seemingly small things. If you're not recognized or named for something you did, it doesn't mean that what you did is unimportant. It does not mean that your contribution is insignificant. In reality, it's quite the opposite. God finds great delight in your simple obedience. Because here's what the disciples' obedience and what Jesus ride in Jerusalem demonstrates to us. Jesus is more concerned with obedience than with the, the crowds. He's more concerned with humility than with all the great things that people could do. He's more concerned with eternity than with the present. And that's what he wants us concerned with. Obedience, humility, eternity. Think about it. Unexpectedly, Jesus didn't come in the 21st century when he could have tweeted what he thought, posted what he did, uploaded the Sermon on the Mount, let a billion people know instantly about his saving work. He didn't lead an insurrection, organize a protest. He did none of that. Out of obedience to the God the Father, Jesus simply grew up in Nazareth of Galilee, then rode into town on a colt as fulfillment of prophecy and as preparation for this incredibly difficult but also important work that he had ahead of him, quietly arranging the events that would lead to his physical suffering and lonely death on a cross so that he, not me and you, so that he could save humanity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. Thank you for your word that explains to us your heart, your heart of love for us. And God, we just humbly receive it. Thank you that Jesus rode into town that day not to receive glory and fanfare, but to put all that aside, to go through that difficult week, to be murdered on a cross so that we could have life and have it abundantly. We thank you for that. I pray that all here this morning will be in awe of who Jesus is and the great lengths that he went to for us. I pray that this will set the tone for a week as we head into this most important week of the year where we reflect upon all that Jesus did for us and all that it means for us in eternity. So Lord God, just make us obedient and humble people, people that have eternity in mind. And may we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.